We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to John chapter 1? If you don't have a Bible, let me invite you to use one of our pew Bibles. You can find John chapter 1 on page 886, I believe. Now this morning we're going to be looking at John's Gospel. The last couple of weeks we've looked at Matthew, we've looked at Luke's, and this morning we are looking at John chapter 1. But before we dig into the opening of John's Gospel, it's important for us to understand What was John's intention in writing his gospel? We talk about that the gospels are more than just simple biographies that report the kind of details of the life of Jesus, but they're specifically selected events, teachings, uh, occurrences in the life of Jesus that the gospel writers have chosen with a goal in mind. For Luke, he said, I tried to put together a compilation so that you might believe these things concerning Jesus the Christ. For John, he has a similar kind of intention. If you go to John chapter 20, towards the end of John's gospel, he tells us exactly why he wrote this. He says in verses 30 through 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John says that there are whole multitude of things that Jesus did, but they didn't write them down because they wrote these specific things down so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that's a title. Sometimes we think of Jesus Christ. We think of Jesus is his first name. Christ is his last name, his family name, but it's actually a title. So it's most accurate to refer to him as Jesus the Christ. And the word Christ is just our English translation of the word that would get translated Messiah which just means that he is the chosen one of God to save God's people. And so John says that I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you might find life. And we know that Jesus says that he came to bring life, but not just a regular kind of life, but an abundant, eternal, God-given kind of life. So John writes this gospel with the goal that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior that God sent, the Son of God, one of the divine persons of God, and that by believing these things, confessing our sin, repenting of it, and looking to Jesus, we might be saved. So that's the truth of John's intention. So whenever you read through the Gospel of John, always have that in the backdrop of your mind. Everything that John is writing is so that you and I would be convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So he begins his gospel this way in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John sets out to write this account of Jesus so that we might believe that he's a Christ. And he begins this way in the beginning. Does that sound familiar? 
Yeah, it should, because those are the same opening words in Genesis chapter 1. And John's doing something intentional here. He's trying to take our minds all the way back to the very beginning of the story of the Bible. Remember, we're talking as a church about what is the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And any good story always has the always have themes that get repeated or get emphasized, get picked up and focused on. Well, this thing in the beginning gets repeated now at the beginning of the New Testament. John wants to take this opening of his gospel so that we might remember something. Those opening words of the story of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He's calling our mind and our attention back to time before time. Before God has created anything, before anything that you and I know and see, any distant stars that scientists and astronomers observe, before any of those things existed, he's drawing our mind and attention back to the time before time, before God created all of these things. He's saying that before there was time, before anything ever began, there was a God and he existed and he is the reason that all of these things exist. So with that as the backdrop, he continues, in the beginning was the word. So John's telling us some specific things about the person of Jesus in these opening verses. But he refers to Jesus as the word of God, which is interesting because if you go back to Genesis, how does God create? God creates by speaking. God creates by speaking things into existence, and he does it by the power of his word, which John is now telling us is actually Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God. John tells us that the word existed before time. Before there was a beginning of anything else, Jesus existed in the time when it was only God and God alone. The word existed and the word was with God. So we see that the word is God, but he's also distinct from God. He was there in the beginning. And so there's God, the father, God, the son. And even all the way back in Genesis, we see God, the Holy Spirit. And so John said that in the beginning, there was this word. The word was with God. And then he goes on and he says that the word was God. Just so that we aren't confused, as you go through John's gospel, he makes it clear that this word that he's referring to is Jesus, the son of God. And the idea is that what John is setting forth here in these first verses will stay in our hearts, in our minds as we continue to read through the rest of his gospel. Now, this is the only place where Jesus is referred to as the word of God. But yet we're meant to read each scene of John's gospel From the calling of his first disciples later in this chapter, from his first miracle when he changes water into wine, from his confrontation with the religious leaders and the political leaders like Pilate, from his death, his crucifixion, his burial and his resurrection. John wants us always to think of this. The word of God is Jesus. God is revealing himself in a very unique and specific way through the life, the teaching, the death and the resurrection Of his son. And so John is saying, This is what it looks like when God comes in flesh. So, everyone who's ever wondered, Well, what is God really like? We look to Jesus and we know. 
Or you can think of it like this. You look at this man of flesh and you see the living God incarnate. So right here at the very beginning of John's gospel, we read this God, the creator God, the sovereign self-existent God has come in human flesh. The theological term for this is the incarnation. And if you take all the gospel accounts together, what you see is that Jesus is presented to us in a very unique way. He has two distinct natures. Jesus is at the same time 100% fully divine. He is 100% God. At the exact same time, he is 100% human. He is at one time 100% divine, 100% God, and at the exact same moment, he's 100% human. We see that here in John's Gospel. He has two distinct natures. Jesus is the Word who was God, who was with God in the beginning, but he's now the God who has made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was fully God and fully man in one person, and he will continue to be that forever. His divine nature was not changed. When he became flesh. Instead, the word, the, div- the divinity or the deity of Christ was joined with the humanity of Christ. And neither one of those things was altered. So he's not just merely a man who had God's kind of special favor or blessing upon him. He wasn't just a man who had more of God in his life. But he was at the exact same time fully God. God in flesh who dwelt among us and fully human. He is the second Person of the Trinity. That's why the author of the Hebrew author of Hebrew says the son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So Jesus is fully God, fully human. Those aren't mixed, but they're distinct. They're not combined into some new kind of nature, but they're two distinct natures and realities that exist at the same time, separate but functioning in this one person, the person of Jesus. And we refer to this in a theological term as a hypostatic union. So that's your kind of thousand dollar theological word for the day. A hypostatic union that Jesus has two natures existing at the exact same time, 100% fully God, 100% fully human. Now, his humanity is important. And the fact that Jesus is born of a virgin shows and makes certain things possible. It makes possible the uniting of the divinity or the deity of Christ and the humanity in one person, but without the inherited sin nature that would have come from his father, from a biological father. We read about this in Galatians chapter 4. So the full humanity of Christ is seen in his life and that he experienced weakness the same way that you and I did. Jesus would get tired. Jesus would get hot. He was limited by having a human body, a mind, a soul, and emotions like you and I do. And yet, he was without sin and perfect in every way. So his full humanity means that he is able to accomplish for us the obedience, the righteousness that required by God. So when Jesus obeys the Father, he does that. And then that's credited to you and to me because he was 100 percent fully human, obeying the law and the commands of God completely. Romans chapter five talks about this. But not only that, not only does he represent us in his active obedience, but he also becomes the substitute, the sacrifice for us on the cross. 
So the incarnation is the act by which the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, humbles himself and takes on human flesh and inhabits a body. But he's also fully divine. That's why he's called the Word who was God and who was with God. That's why he allowed people to worship him. He was called Lord in, in places like Luke chapter 2. He accepts those things that are rightfully his as God. That's why throughout John, a couple of years ago, we went through a sermon series in which Jesus makes all of these great I am sayings. And they were offensive to the religious leaders because they understood what he was saying. He was taking the covenant name of God that was revealed to Moses through the burning bush, Yahweh. And he was saying, I am. You know that. Well, I am the I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. He claimed to be God. And that's why the religious leaders wanted to put him to death. So at the same time, he's fully human. He's fully divine, he's omnipotent, he's eternal, he's omniscient, he's sovereign, and he's worthy of worship. So Jesus' humanity was fully necessary, but his deity is necessary as well. Because only someone who's infinite could bear the penalty of sin. We know that salvation is from the Lord, and so only someone who is truly God could be the one who creates or becomes the mediator between sinful humanity and a holy God. So Jesus comes, he's the unique communication that reveals to us who and what God is like. So we have to be careful that we don't fall into error about what it means that Jesus is God in human flesh. A couple of these errors are this, that he had a human body, but he had a divine spirit or divine mind. Or some people believe throughout history that he had two distinct persons. There was the divine Christ and the human Christ. Some say he had only one nature, what was more human than you and I are, but less than fully divine like God is. But the actual Orthodox Christian definition was kind of established and defined in Chalcedon in around AD 41. And they rejected all of these adequate views. And it said this, that Jesus is the eternal son of God. That he took to himself a truly human nature, that his divine and human natures remain distinct and retain their own properties, and yet they are eternally and inseparably, inseparably united together in the one person of Jesus. So this definition means that one does this definition means that one nature does some things, the other nature does not, and anything either nature does, Jesus does completely. So we have the doctrine of the Trinity presented right in the very beginning of John's gospel. One God who exists in three persons at the same time. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So John's writing about the second member of this Trinity. And he calls him the Word. And he says that all things were made through him. And without him nothing was made that was made. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men. That light now shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And then we have this abrupt transition. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to bear witness about the light. So verses 6 through 8 are kind of a departure from what John's been talking about up to this point. He's been talking about this word that's come, God in human flesh. And if you take out verses 6 through 8, the verses flow nicely. But John chooses to include 
several verses about a man named John. We've mentioned him briefly a couple of weeks ago. There was a man who was sent from God. We talked about that he would be the forerunner, the one who would come, a voice crying in the wilderness. And now John is saying that this man's name is John. We know him as John the Baptist. And he says he came to be a witness, to testify about the light. But John makes it very clear. He himself is not the light. Then he transitions again in verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And in the word, John says, became flesh, he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then another transition. And you see, if you're reading along in our English translation, the ESV translation, you see these parenthetical uh, markings because they're trying to communicate somewhat of the abrupt nature of this transition. Verse 15 says, John bore witness, there's that word again, about him, and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me, he ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has now made him known. So this is the ministry of John the Baptist. The ministry of John the Baptist. Remember we said for 400 years there was no word, no prophet proclaiming, thus saith the Lord. For 400 years it's silence. God has not spoken. And now John the Baptist appears on the scene and this is his ministry. He gets to point sinners to Jesus. He's calling people to repent while there is still time. We move from this word made flesh that dwells among us or tabernacles with us to the ministry of John the Baptist, who is calling the people to repent and baptizing them in a baptism of repentance. And then one day, the fully grown man, Jesus, comes and presents himself to John the Baptist to be baptized. This is what we read about as we continue on. Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests to Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and he did not deny, but said this. I am not the Christ. And they asked him then, well, what then are you? Are you Elijah? I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. So they said to him, who are you? For we need you to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said this. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. And John said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy worthy to untie. These things, they took place in Bethany across the Jordan where he was baptizing. So John's this voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Repent, get ready, because God has come in our midst. And people were responding. Large numbers of people were responding to the ministry of John the Baptist. And it causes the religious leaders in Jerusalem to take note. And so they send this group out. They sent some from the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to go out and find out, who are you? 
Are you Elijah come back from the dead? Are you the prophet Moses? Are you the Christ, the one we've been waiting for? And he says, I am not. I am simply the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. So this preacher has been preaching and people have been repenting. Somewhat of a revival has broken out. There's been this outpouring, it seems like, of God's spirit. And people are coming to John for a baptism of repentance. The religious leaders take note. They go out into the wilderness to find out exactly what's going on. The emphasis in this account right here, I think, is when he quotes the prophet Isaiah. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. In the Old Testament, we've looked at this, the wilderness is full of meaning. The people of God have promises made to them that Abraham would be the father of a mighty nation, that God would bless him, and through him and his descendants, the whole world might be blessed. And the story goes that he has a number of sons, but he has a couple of sons that he favors. The rest of the brothers are jealous, and they decide that this one brother that their father loves more than anyone else that they want to put to death. But then their consciences get the best of it, and they say, well, if we kill him, we don't get anything out of it. Why don't we sell him to some slave traders? And so they sell their brother Joseph into the slave trade. He's taken down to Egypt. And there God, through various circumstances, blesses him and he becomes the second most powerful man in all of the world. And God's promises come true. Israel, because of the way he worked in the life of Joseph, becomes a mighty nation so great that Pharaoh, a number of years later, feels threatened by them. And so he puts them in bondage and forces them to become slave labor. But they continue to increase. They continue to increase. And God hears their cries. God sees their suffering and he sends Moses to deliver them, to go into the presence of Pharaoh and to declare, let my people go that they might go into the wilderness and serve me. And then the story is that there are ten plagues that are visited upon Egypt. The last and the final is the death of the firstborn. And we've talked about that at various times. That was symbolic of the debt that was owed because of sin. And in every household in Egypt that night, someone died. There was a death in every single house. It was either the death of the firstborn or it was the death of a sacrificial lamb whose blood was then spread upon the doorposts. Pharaoh finally relents. The people of God are released and they go out and they're on this journey to go into the promised land. And what happens? They disobey. They do not believe that God will give to them the things that he's promised. And so they're judged. And the judgment is that they have to wander around in the wilderness For 40 years. They're on their way to this promised land, but they have to spend this time in the wilderness. And now John the Baptist says, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. The one reminding you the promises that God made, he is bringing to fulfillment in the person of Jesus. But there's something else. Ever since the fall, our world has been marked by chaos. The garden that Adam and Eve were placed in has become somewhat of a wilderness. And God, through his great plan of cosmic redemption, has been bringing back all which was lost. So God's work of redemption, our salvation, is in some ways him undoing or redoing what was done all the way back in Genesis 1. And that's why John is so focused on in the beginning. That in the beginning, the word was there and he created everything. And now because of your sin, because of mine, because of the sin of our first parents, death and hell, destruction has been unleashed all over all creation But the gardener has come to recreate everything anew. 
So everything that was lost in the Garden of Eden, God is working to get us back to that place where humanity lives in the presence of God. That's why when you go all the way into the book of Revelation, this thing gets repeated. The new city, the Jerusalem that comes down is compared to a garden. And there in the midst is this tree. So the theme that we read all the way back in Genesis, the first chapters, gets repeated all the way through. Jerusalem is now not only a new city, but a new garden where the fruit and trees flourish to the glory of God. If you want to read about that, you can flip over to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. But before you do that, I want us to look at John chapter 20 again. Start in verse 11. This is the resurrection of Jesus. Mary, she goes to the tomb. And John says in verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. There was one at the head, one at the feet, and they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing. But notice what John says. She did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have yet, yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so she went and announced to his disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. What's interesting is that John includes these details. No other gospel writers do. That she's there. She's looking for the body of Jesus. And he appears to her. She does not recognize him. But he says she supposed him to be the gardener. I think John is doing something very, very important. This is not some accidental mistake. He is the gardener. He's the gardener that spoke all things into existence all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. He's the gardener who will take everything that we have broken because of our sin and our defiant disobedience and will recreate it where sin and death are no more. See, Jesus begins his suffering in a garden. If you think about the story of the gospel, you remember he takes his disciples and he goes to a garden and that's where he agonizes over the cross. Isaac Ambrose, he explains the significance of this garden motif in the Gospels, both in regard to the beginning of Jesus' suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, but also at the end of his suffering in the garden where his body is laid to rest in a tomb. This is what he writes. He says, Jesus went forth with his disciples to where there was a garden in John chapter 18. There are many mysteries that are included in this word, and it is not without reason that our Savior goes into a garden. Why? Because a garden was where we first fell. And therefore, Christ made choice of a garden to begin the great work of our redemption. And that first garden was the beginning of all evils. And in this garden is the beginning of our restitution or our rescue or redemption from all evils. In the first garden, Adam was overthrown by Satan. In the second garden, the sec- I mean, in the garden, the second Adam overcame and Satan himself is overcome. In the first garden, sin is contracted, and we are ever, forever indebted by our sins to God. In this garden, sin is paid for by the great and precious blood 
of the Lamb of God. In the first garden, we eat of the forbidden fruit. And in this garden, Christ sweats it out with a bloody sweat. In the first garden, death enters into the world. In this garden, life comes to restore us from death and bring us to life again. In the first garden, Adam's liberty to sin brought all of us into bondage. And in this garden, Christ, being bound and fettered, sets us free to liberty. He goes on, a garden was the place where we fell. Christ chooses a garden to begin the great work of redemption. He is the second Adam. So everything that was lost in that first garden, he is going to undo or recreate starting in a garden. He's showing us that everything that Adam and Eve failed in, he will be faithful to fulfill. What was lost in that garden is now started in the plan of redemption. He was buried and he was raised to life in a garden. And when Mary Magdalene comes and looks for the body of Jesus... She sees him, but not recognizes him. She mistakes him for the gardener because he is. St. Clair Ferguson sums it all like this. Adam was to garden the whole earth for the glory of God the Father, but he failed. Created to make the dust fruitful, he becomes part of the dust. The Garden of Eden becomes the wilderness of this world. But John's gospel records what happened on that first morning of the resurrection. The beginning of the new creation, Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, is raised to life. But she does not recognize him. Mary instead spoke to him, supposing him to be the gardener. Well, who else would it have been at that time of the morning? The gardener. Yes, indeed, Sinclair Ferguson writes. He is the gardener, the second man, the last Adam, who is now beginning to restore the garden of God. Later that day, Jesus showed his disciples where the nails and the spear had drawn blood from his hands and side. Where the serpent had indeed crushed his heel, but he had in turn crushed the serpent's head. And now he's planning to turn the wilderness of our lives back into the garden of God. Soon he would send his disciples into the world with the good news of his victory. That all authority that had been lost by Adam had now been regained. And that the world was being claimed by Jesus the conqueror. That's why the closing scenes of the book of Revelation show us a new earth, a new heaven coming down that looks like a garden. Because Jesus is the gardener. Think about it. If he was there at the beginning and if he could create and speak all things into existence, then no matter how bad you've messed up your life, no matter how bad I've messed up my life, If he can create it out of nothing, which is the the term ex nihilo that we talk about creation, then he can take the constituted broken parts and put them together in a beautiful way and renew and recreate the lives of his people. Think about it. If you had an old car, let's say a 1972 Pontiac Grand Prix. Now, that was originally designed by John DeLorean. And you found this car buried in a farm field and you decided you wanted to restore it. But you didn't have the expertise and the required, the required skills to do this. Who would be the best person to identify and to target as your team leader for this restoration project? John DeLorean, the guy who designed this car from the very beginning. He knows the ins and the outs. He knows how it goes together. And he knows the why it goes together in the various and specific ways that it does. All of your attempts at self-salvation, trying to make your life a garden where you can live and experience the presence of God, will fail. 
But if you turn your life over to Jesus, the one who was there in the beginning, who spoke all things into existence and brought order out of chaos and fashioned a garden where humanity could live and experience the presence of God, if you turn your life to him, you believe that he is the Christ, which is what John wants us to do, and you repent of your sin and ask him to forgive you, then by the blood that is shed, God will make you a new creation. See, the whole key of this comes in verse 29 when John, out baptizing, sees Jesus walking to him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lots of people were clamoring for the title of Messiah. Lots of people wanted to be the one who came and rescued God's people and delivered them from the Romans. But nobody was claiming the title of Lamb of God. And yet John recognized it in this moment. That Jesus is coming to do something very special and unique. That to save God's people, he will have to lose his life. His blood will have to be spilt as the sacrifice for sin. So will you trust him this morning? Will you look to Jesus, who is not only the Word of God, who is not only the true gardener, but who is also the Lamb of God, who takes away not just the sins of the world, but the sins of His people, so that you and I can have the full confidence that we are at peace with God and that we can enter into the presence of God. Let's pray.